The following talk was given at Mile High Church in Lakewood, Colorado. Please visit our website at milehighchurch.org. We're beginning today our Spring Renewal Program. It's an annual four-part series uh, that's all about our renewal, and it culminates on Easter Sunday. And uh, in this, this series, our purpose is to uh, discover uh, the metaphysical and practical meanings of the Easter story for people of all faiths, and then to put the transformational power of those teachings uh, to work in our lives. And along the way, I also pray that we arrive at a deeper understanding of the true message of that great master teacher, Jesus, uh, and apart from the distortions and the superstition that abounds. I don't know if there's any enlightened master more misrepresented uh, than, than that great teacher. We can find something different in that. I'm reminded of the cute story of this uh, drunken kind of guy stumbling around in the forest, and he happens on to a group of people, uh, a minister and some people doing baptisms down by the river. And, and so um, he, he watches them for a moment, and he stumbles up and gets right in the preacher's face. He says, what's you doing? And, and the preacher, seeing the condition of the guy, says, sir, have you found Jesus yet? And he says, no, I haven't. He said, well, would you like to find Jesus? And he said, well, sure. So he took the guy into the river, and he fully immersed him in the water. There's a little bit of struggling there, and he brings him up, and he says, did you find Jesus? And he says, no, I didn't. So he throws him into the water again, and he's flailing around there, and he pulls him up and says, boy, did you find Jesus? He says, no, sir, I didn't. So a third time, he dunks him in there, and now there's, and he holds him down a long time this time, and there's massive flailing of of arms and legs, and finally he pulls him out, and he says, boy, did you find Jesus now? And the guy looks exhausted and amazed. He says, are you sure this is where he fell in? (laughs) Well, hopefully we can succeed in finding something deeper about this illustrious soul. Now, our theme for this series is the resurrection of heart. Jesus' stand for love is unequaled in human history. He oozed unconditional love. And he gathered around him the discarded, the the discouraged, He gathered around him the forlorn and the forgotten. And he loved them. And so many of them were healed. And and he had a, a simple but elegant message. He simply said, you can take all of the laws and the rules you were taught and you can set them aside and just do this. Love God with everything in you. And love your neighbor as yourself. You will fulfill all of these laws and rules if you can love in this way. And that's what he offered them. And so actually, that great master teacher was an emissary of heart. Absolutely an emissary of heart. And there are a whole lot of people caught up in the religion about Jesus. We're into the spirituality of Jesus. Because we have come to understand that his ultimate mission 
was the awakening of our hearts to the realization of the love of the divine in us, around us, through us, for us, no matter what. But that was all it was about. And he was very clear, it wasn't about him, although faiths have made it about him. He said, it's not about me. He said, follow me. Use me as an example. And he said, you will do the things that I have done, and you're going to even do greater things than I have done. That's what he was all about. He was an emissary of the heart. Our founder expands on this. Dr. Holmes had a whole section in his epic work, The Science of Mind, our big thick book that's the heart and soul of our teaching. He had a whole section on the, the teachings of Jesus and then a chapter called Finding the Christ, Finding that Anointed Consciousness, that cosmic consciousness within ourselves. And about Jesus, he wrote, Jesus understood his own nature. He knew that as the human embodies the divine, it manifests the Christ nature. Jesus never thought of himself as different from others. His whole teaching was that what he did, others could do. He located God and the kingdom of heaven within us all. He plunged beneath the material surface of creation and found its spiritual cause. This cause he called God or the Father. Now, I know that Mile High Church is filled with folks who have been turned off. Turned off by the outmoded, fear-based, discriminatory fundamentalism that's so prevalent. Turned off by that. And I can understand that. I mean, this place is filled with a bunch of free thinkers. I know you. You're a bunch of spiritual rebels. I know that. And I cherish that about you. I cherish that. But here's the deal. We mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. As we think more expansively, we still, I encourage us to, to deepen into what he was really all about, what that great teacher was really trying to awaken in us. Because I'm very clear that for him it was not about the resurrection of his soul. That wasn't what it was all about, though theologies abound about that. He was very clear that we're all immortal. Once a disciple asked him, what is God's relationship to the dead? And he said, he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for in his sight all are alive. And he said, there are many, in my Father's house there are many mansions or dimensions, and I go to prepare a place for you, so don't be afraid. So it wasn't really about the resurrection of his soul. I'm very clear that it was about the resurrection of heart. That's what he was about. He was about the resurrection of heart, the, the absolute knowing that there's a love in every one of us that can rise above the darkness and the suffering of humanity and actually heal it. And that brings us to our topic in this first installment in this series, the martyrdom of heart. Now, of course, Jesus knew all about martyrdom, but he also, also knew about the martyrdom of the heart. You see, the heart is the spiritual power center of our being. And as I'll speak more about next week, it's, it's the greatest intelligence of our being in the heart. Not in the brain, but in the heart. Because it's a vortex to divine and unconditional love. And we all possess it. And yet, this truth of us, this power of us, is so overlooked continually, regularly. There, there are voices and forces 
in us and around us, lobbying us to discount and disregard our highest capacity, love. And so we see throughout all of human history, just as much as today, a martyrdom of the heart. For instance, the ego winning out over the heart. So here we are with this incredible linkage to the divine essence of all love. And how often do we find myself, how often do I find myself caught up back in the ego? You know, back in that sense of the separate, fearful self, the unworthy self, you know, trying to boost up a sense of self-importance or self-righteousness. And how often that's what runs our lives. Rather than the heart. Ego over the heart. A martyrdom. Then there's intellect over the heart. The intellect has done wonderful things, especially in our uh, technological world, especially today. And yet, without heart, it's shallow, even dangerous. But how often do we go by our current encyclopedia of ideas rather than going to the heart for something more? Then there are the judgments over heart. Rather than letting the heart show us something deeper and finer, how often do we default back into our biases and our prejudices and our harsh judgments of others, either groups of others or individuals that we've encountered on our pathway, judgments over the heart. I'm so pleased that we're bringing here Janet Mock in a couple of weeks. Please don't miss her. It's relevant to us all because she represents an, a, 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 a cadre of individuals who haven't felt at home in their bodies, and she's one who has had the courage to change that and, and to, to be available to, to teach about the magnificence of life in a way that works for her. And I'm so proud of that, and I invite you to be here. And I'm, I want to congratulate Reverend Carol Wilkie and, and all who have, have brought this forward, and I've been so proud to see it on our digital sign out there announcing to the world that we're about this, that we're not in judgment of these beings as so many are because we're all one. We are all of the Spirit. But that's a martyrdom, isn't it? The judgment over the heart. There's violence over heart. The heart is martyred by our continual proclivity to violence as a solution. And when in human history has it ever been? Oh, and then there's expedience and profit over heart. And how often do we see that? I fear that we're needing to teach to our society again a literacy of the heart. That we're beginning to miss that in expedience and profit. The martyrdom of heart. We all experience it personally. We see it going on in our world, in our country. And we need to be clear about that. Just as it was happening in that day of his, it's happening in ours. There's a time in his final days. Jesus had taken his ministry back into Jerusalem, the governmental and the spiritual capital of his day, to what he knew would be great threat to him, his demise. And it got heavy for him, and so in his final days, he found himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was praying there uh, to get centered back in this truth, knowing what he faced. And the multitude arrived in the garden to arrest him. 
And if you remember, Judas came over and kissed him to identify him, kissed him on the cheek. And then his followers rose up and, and said that they would fight for him. In fact, one of his followers took up a sword and, and cut the ear of the servant of the high priest. And with that, Jesus sprung up and he said, no more of this. No more of this. And he went over and he touched the ear of that servant and healed it. So facing his own martyrdom, he intervenes on that violence and says, no more of this. It's like he's trying to say to all of humanity, no more of this. And at this time of renewal of our spirits in the springtime, I'm wondering if we're willing to do some of the things he did in that moment. First of all, he drew a line. He drew a line and he said, no more of this. And you know, there are times on our own particular journey when we too are called to draw a line in the sand, as it were, and to declare to ourselves, no more of this. No more of my self-limiting behavior, for instance, or no more of self-sabotage. No more of uh, being imprisoned in something that doesn't work for me. No more of this. Uh, No more of denying taking the next steps in life, even when they're unknown or seem fearful. I deal with this. Do you deal with this? And at this Easter time, we get to say, no more of this. No more of this holding me back. No more of this self-limitation in my life. No more of allowing the martyrdom of my own heart in the way I live. No more of this. No more. And then if we do that in our individual lives, we can come together as a whole and we can proclaim to every one of us, we can be a united voice saying no more of this to the stuff that we see going on so much. No more of this to the myth that our true security is found in the proliferation of assault weapons and the buildup of military might. No more of this. No, no more of systemic bias and, and systemic privilege and violence. No more of this. You know, no more of spiritual principles and religions being distorted for political advantage. No more of this. No more of the persecution of women and minorities and LGBTQ people. No more of this. No more of this to the heartless raping of our planet and its resources. No more of this to the the widening gap between the wealthy and the poor in our world. Or or the, the callous, heartless rejection of immigrants from other lands. No more of this. And no more of this to the damaging of the education and the welfare and the dreams of our children. We can come together from heart and say no more of this. It's drawing a line. And there comes a time where our hearts compel us to draw a line and to declare no more of that. If we'll do it personally, then we have the spiritual authority to do it collectively. And let us remember that that great teacher did something else. He drew a line. He said no more of this. But then he also extended a healing hand. And that's our secondary calling, to draw a line and then extend a healing energy, extend a healing hand. 
Because that great teacher wanted to initiate us into the heart. He wanted to initiate us into the healing, co-creative capacities of the heart center within us all. Because he knew that would be the reformation, the healing of the world, so that we could build up a paradise upon this planet. So he said no more of this, and yet he exuded love. And so we get to ask ourselves, what's the healing hand that we can extend? There's a lot uh, being written about and spoken about mindfulness in our world today. In fact, it's one of the things that I teach, one of the many techniques I teach in the meditation and prayer retreat. And... um, I now have a sense that mindfulness, which is being fully present to whatever is, needs another ingredient, and that's compassion. And so now I'm kind of into heartfulness, which is mindfulness on steroids. You know, mindfulness with, with heart, heartfulness. I think that's the healing hand. As we draw a line, we can start living heartfully. We can start expressing heartfulness. And I would call us to acts acts of heartfulness. And therefore, I want to leave you with today, and of course, as I tend to do, the letters of acts uh, can help you remember these. The first act of heartfulness is awakening. How powerful it is to awaken such that we use all of our life experiences well as teachers of love. All our experiences are teachers of love, and for us to be willing to look at those times when we martyr heart in our own lives and to awaken from that. I love the story that I've told long ago about an Italian family. And there was a nine-year-old boy named Roberto. He lived with his parents and with his grandfather. His grandfather was his mom's dad. And uh, Roberto and his grandfather were extremely close. Uh, He loved his grandfather and his grandfather loved him. And, And they would spend a lot of time together and the grandfather would tell Roberto about the times he would climb trees and and mountains and the adventures he would have and their time together was magical however the grandfather did not get along so well with his own child his daughter and her husband you see his daughter had become a very uh, picky a housekeeper, and, and she was very concerned that the, the linens and, and everything in the house look, looked very beautiful. But inevitably, when they would gather for their family dinner, uh, it became very stressed because the grandfather had the palsy, you know, and his hands shook. And inevitably, he would spill coffee or something on the fresh linens, and this would aggravate his daughter to no end. And in fact, at one point, uh, the, the grandfather was was sipping coffee and, and, and he lost hold of the cup and it shattered and got coffee everywhere. And, and his daughter flew into a rage. He said, I can't trust you to be at this dinner table. I go to all of this trouble to put this together so beautifully and look what you do. You're going to now eat in the kitchen. And so the grandfather was banished to the kitchen. And this grieved young Roberto so much that he'd gobble down his, his dinner as fast as possible and rush out into the kitchen to be with his beloved grandfather and to continue to share their stories. Well, one time, a little bit after that, the grandfather was eating his porridge and he lost control of the bowl and it shattered on the kitchen floor. And his daughter ran in there and she was just livid. She said, I can't even trust you with my good china. This is ridiculous. From now on, you're eating with a wooden bowl. 
Well, in his culture, to eat out of a wooden bowl was a disgrace. A disgrace. And so there was a growing sadness in, in the grandfather's eyes. Well, Roberto still spent a lot of time with his grandfather. But that night, he snuck down and he got the pieces of the broken bowl, which had been swept into the fireplace in the kitchen. He got them and he glued them carefully together. And then he took that repaired bowl and he set it on his dresser in his room. And, and though he'd spend time with his grandfather, he actually spent a whole lot more time in his room as well and was, began to be curious to his mother. And, and so at one point, she went and knocked on the door and came into the room and she saw Roberto there carving a wooden bowl to duplicate the broken china bowl that he had repaired. And this startled his mom. And she said, Roberto, are you carving a bowl for your father, your grandfather to use? And Roberto paused and looked at his mother. And he says, no, mother, this bowl is not for grandpa. This bowl is for you when you get to be grandpa's age. Tears flooded her. She had her awakening. And immediately they brought the grandfather back to the table. And they embraced his shaking hands and his palsy. They embraced it all and began to see through their judgments to the beauty of that beautiful soul. The beauty that Roberto had never misplaced. Sometimes in our lives it's about awakening. Carl Jung said, your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. Who looks outside dreams. Who looks inside awakens. Acts of heartfulness, awakening, and then connectedness. It's to know that there are those times when we can connect in with the human condition and connect in with others and make a beautiful difference as we know that we are all ultimately one. Heartfulness. A wonderful guy named Charles Eisenstein has written a beautiful book called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. And in this book, he talks about his wife, Patsy, who is a real estate agent. And how it was at one time that she had a client who had a mother who they call Mrs. K, who was terminally ill. And she lived a distance away in a derelict house. And Patty was asked to begin the sales process for this house. And so she went out to the house to get measurements. And when she got there, she found Mrs. K laying in a pool of her own urine and excrement. And she couldn't get up. And so he says that Patsy spent over an hour cleaning her up. That Patsy gave her her own lunch to Mrs. K, who probably hadn't had a nourishing lunch for a long time. Um, And and Mrs. K's son lived a couple of hours away and was working two jobs Well, she helped her in that instance, and then soon thereafter, Mrs. K passed away. But Eisenstein writes about that, and I invite us to hear this. Patsy's choice to help was a choice between compassion and the practical demands of her busy schedule. Part of her mind was chattering, just call the police. You're going to miss your other appointments. This isn't your responsibility. What does it matter? I mean, we all hear voices like that, right? He goes on to say, but on some level, she knew that it did matter. So many voices lobby us to forget love, forget humanity, sacrifice the present and the real for the sake of what seems more practical. Imagine yourself on your deathbed, looking back on your life. 
What moments will seem the most precious? For Patsy will be cleaning up Mrs. K more than any real estate she sold. Connecting. Heartfulness of connection. Awakening and connection. And then tenderness. Tenderness. I love the old song, Try a Little Tenderness. I think we could walk in our lives with a bit more tenderness. And, and also recognizing that sometimes it's even just the smallest gestures of, of kindness or, or connection that, that leave a lasting, indelible impression. At the meditation and prayer retreat we conducted a couple of weekends ago, uh, Erica and I were sitting at one of the tables at dinner, and a, a lovely couple was there at the retreat. And they were talking about the Mile High Family Christmas. It's a thing we do in early December, and it's all for the kids. And Santa's there, and reindeer, and the gingerbread man, and there's great music, and a pageant, and all this great stuff. And I read a story during this. And usually there's a bench here, and then I'm flooded with kids all around me, hanging all over me, and I read this story, and, uh, which I did this past Christmas. And I remember at the end of it, as the kids were dispersing and I stood up, I patted a little kid on the head, and, and um, then we went on with the service. Well, as we were eating dinner at the retreat, this couple said, by the way, um, our, our son, he was about six or seven years old, uh, went to the Mile High Family Christmas. And I said, oh, yeah. And they said, when we got home, we asked him, what did you like most about the family Christmas? And again, there was all this wonderful stuff going on. And you know what he said? He said, I liked it when the gray-haired man patted me on the head most. (laughs) Well, once I got over the gray-haired man part, I thought I had an idea that a simple pat on the head to a little one would be something that overshadowed everything else going on there. Maybe it's because we all want that. We all want the touch of love in our lives. A little tenderness, awakening, connection, tenderness, and then finally service. To be in service to love, to stand for the highest and best of our hearts. I was privileged to conduct a memorial service for the father of a dear, dear person in our church, Larry Rowland, and his wife, Susan Letourneau, and Larry's father, Gerard, had passed over, and he was in his 90s, and and, and it's always such a, a rich experience to hear about the life of somebody who's passed over and try to find a way to communicate it. And in the process, Larry told me that when his father, Gerard, was in military service as a young man, he was, for a time, stationed in the Deep South, and that he had gotten on a very crowded public bus to go somewhere. And uh, there were no seats left, and he sat down, and, and then an African-American woman got on the bus. And Gerard jumped up and gave her his seat. And when he did that, a man behind him grumbled, we don't do that around here, boy. That's not how we do things. And Gerard very firmly and calmly said to him, well, that's how I do things. I was so touched by that, that kind of service. Imagine a world where we, yes, draw a line, but extend the healing hand of heartfulness through awakening in our life, connections, tenderness, and service. Just imagine the fulfillment of your own heart and the beauty of the life you deserve. I call us to that, to contemplate this deeply and to fulfill the calling of that great teacher who knew we're far greater than we know ourselves to be. 
Just remember, as it's written in Proverbs, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the blessings of life.